Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to begin with some very familiar words. I'm sure you will all remember or know these words. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others until death do us part. Perhaps those of you who are married uh, may have used those vows or a different version of them in your own wedding. And I'm sure that those of you who have had long and enduring marriages will attest that on the day that you took those vows, you had absolutely no idea how life would turn out for you. No doubt you had your hopes and your dreams and no doubt, as most young couples do, you anticipated a happily ever after. But none of us knows how much of the better we will get compared to the worse. None of us can predict whether we will be richer or poorer, nor can we foresee what health battles might lie ahead. You know, when my eldest daughter was about three years old, Disney Pixar released uh, an animated movie called Up. Some of you might have seen it. She and I watched that movie more than a few times. Whenever I was feeling exhausted, uh, when her brothers were at school, we would put on that movie and watch it together. And she would laugh at me as I uh, would never fail to cry in the opening scene of that movie. And in preparing for this morning, I looked up the opening scene of, of that movie up online and I rewatched it again to refresh my memory. And guess what? 12 years later, that opening scene can still make me cry, which is pretty amazing, really, given that it's an animated movie. And I know that I'm not the only one who loves that opening scene. When the movie first came out, The Guardian described that opening scene as remarkable, brilliant, and a masterclass in narrative exposition. The Telegraph described it as one of the most extraordinary openings to a film, while another reviewer wrote, honestly, that it left him a weeping husk of a man. The opening scene is a montage of married life. The scene opens with the joy of the wedding day of young, adventurous, joyful Ellie and her slightly more reserved husband, Carl. They are a young couple very much in love. And as the camera pans across the scenes of their life, we progress to the excitement of moving in and then renovating their first home. Day trips to their favourite picnic spot as they daydream and share their hopes for the future. Then there's the anticipation and expectation of family life as the montage pans across the scene of them preparing a new room for a new baby. But the camera pans on from this scene and the next one is of heartbreak in a doctor's office. No words at all are spoken in any of this opening montage, but it's obvious that their plans for a family will not be fulfilled. The montage moves on to scenes of day-to-day -day life, going out to work, coming home again, and their dreams of adventure to one day visit Paradise Falls together. 
and they start a savings jar to, to save up for their big uh, dream trip. But then time and time again, the circumstances of life cause this jar to be smashed and the money used to repair the car, to pay for hospital bills and to put a new a roof on the house when a tree unexpectedly falls through the roof. The couple grow happily old together and one day Carl looks over at his wife who's hunched over sweeping the floor and she's old and grey and he remembers their dreams and he takes down that money jar from the shelf, long forgotten, and he goes and purchases two tickets to Venezuela intending to surprise his wife and take her on that trip to Paradise Falls. But he's too late. His beloved Ellie has become ill and she dies before their dream can be fulfilled. And I can remember that my daughter used to always say, Mum, why are you crying? And it was a very difficult thing to explain to a three-year-old because she assumed that I was crying because the wife died. And certainly it is sad that the wife died before their dreams could be fulfilled, but I started crying long before that point. And it wasn't really that I was crying over any kind of sadness at all. What makes me cry in that movie, in that opening scene, is that life did not turn out at all for them as they had imagined it. Life was not a bed of roses and yet they prevailed. Parts of their life were extremely painful. Parts of their life were just plain mundane. And ultimately their dream of adventure was not fulfilled and yet they remained faithful to one another, faithful unto death. And the church that we're going to hear about today, this church in Smyrna, was called to do likewise in their relationship with the Lord. This little letter to the church in Smyrna spans only four verses. It's the shortest of all seven of the letters to the churches in Revelation. And it is one of only two letters that contains no criticism and no rebuke. What a wonderful thing it would be for any church to receive a letter from Jesus and how much more wonderful to find that it contained not a single criticism or rebuke. Smyrna must have been quite a church. Let's have a little look at what Jesus has to say to this church. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and just four verses, verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, there are many subtleties in this little letter that makes it just come alive. For the people of Smyrna, 
those four little verses spoke volumes, but to us, they seem a little blunt. The original audience understood exactly what Jesus was saying because he was speaking into their reality. And we need to work a little bit harder to unearth some of those subtleties that will allow this letter to speak to us like I'm sure it spoke to them. Verse 8 begins, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. And normally we'd rush on and keep reading past this point, but today we're going to linger there because what's offered there is like someone putting on a pair of prescription glasses, someone with poor vision putting on a pair of prescription glasses for the first time. Understanding what's offered in the first half of verse 8 opens up the depth and the fullness of this whole letter, which is otherwise a bit beyond our ability to perceive. Understanding that first half of verse 8 is like the difference between seeing in black and white and in full colour. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. It doesn't seem like there's much to go on there, just a title or an opening line, much like we would begin a letter, Dear John. Well, more often than not in the Bible, names are important. They carry meaning. And so whenever you come across a name, particularly if it's highlighted like this one is, you will always do well to find out what that name means. And as we move through these letters to the seven churches, we will see that many of them have highly significant names or highly instructive names that really help us with the clarity and perception of our reading these letters. The name Smyrna is derived from myrrh. And myrrh was a small shrubby tree that grew abundantly in the region. And it produced a bitter gum. And so this word is associated with bitterness. Verse 8 could just as well read, to the angel of the church in bitterness. And all of a sudden, right there, black and white becomes full colour. Suddenly, we have quite a picture of the circumstances that this church found themselves in. Life for them wasn't just a bit difficult or occasionally unpleasant. Physically, their circumstances were bitter. Now, most of us have heard of myrrh, not as a shrubby tree, but as the product of that shrubby tree by the same name which was brought by the wise men as a gift to baby Jesus. And those of you who have sat through enough Christmas sermons in your lifetime will probably be aware of its association with death. Myrrh was used as a spice for embalming bodies. And it was Nicodemus who used myrrh uh, to prepare Christ's body for burial. You'll read that in John 19.39. So the name of this church gives us a very big hint as to what they were going through and what the reality of their future might look like for them. The ancient city of Smyrna was located about 60 kilometres north of Ephesus in that part of Asia, which is uh, modern day Turkey. Smyrna was a wealthy port city. It had fertile soils and an excellent climate. It was a centre for science and medicine. It was well regarded for its fine wines, beautiful streets and buildings and its wealth. 
Smyrna had a stadium where the games were held. It had a library and it had one of the largest theatres in Asia Minor. Among all the ancient writers, Smyrna was renowned for its beauty. It was known as the flower of Asia or the crown of Asia because it was built around the base and the lower slopes and summit of Mount Pegasus, such that the mountain with its beautiful buildings around it looked like a giant crowned head. Smyrna owed much of that beauty to the fact that unlike other cities that kind of grew haphazardly as the population grew, Smyrna was a planned city. In 334 BC, Alexander the Great seized what remained of what was once a thriving town, said to be the birthplace of the poet Homer and the location for the writing of his Iliad. Successive invasions and the passing of time had rendered it little more than a collection of unimportant villages. Legend has it that after seizing the town in a dream, Alexander was uh, advised to move the city three miles to the south to Mount Pegasus and he made plans to do just that. Eventually after its construction the residents moved to this new planned city. It had wide streets paved with stones made into beautiful patterns and it had many many beautiful temples dedicated to the whole pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses that were worshipped there. There was even a street that was paved in gold that is said to have run from east to west around the lower slopes of Mount Pegasus from the temple of Zeus to the temple of Cybele. Smyrna was a free and self-governing city and it was known for its intense loyalty to Rome. On one occasion, hearing of Roman soldiers cold and hungry on the battlefield, the residents of Smyrna were said to have even stripped the very clothes off their own backs and gathered them together with whatever food they could find to send it to the battlefield in support of Rome. So strong was their reverence for Rome that in 195 BC, Smyrna became the first city in the world to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. This temple was for the worship of the spirit of Rome. Then sometime later in 26 AD, Smyrna defeated all the other cities of Asia Minor, including Ephesus, for the privilege of erecting a temple to the godhead of the emperor Tiberius. Such was their renown for their loyalty to Rome. Now, initially, emperor worship was little more than just a means of demonstrating gratitude to Rome. But towards the latter part of the first century, during the reign of Domitian, emperor worship became compulsory. And the residents of Smyrna adopted it wholeheartedly. Every year, every person would have to burn a small amount of incense and publicly declare Caesar is Lord. Those that did this received a certificate and had little trouble getting a job. For those that didn't, life was going to be difficult. They could expect severe punishment, sometimes even death. Work was going to be hard to come by. Forget starting a small business. Not only would selling be difficult, 
buying anything was also going to be a problem. So Smyrna was a beautiful, wealthy, ancient city full of temples to just about every pagan god that you can think of. In addition, they were also worshipping Rome itself and they were fully immersed in this emperor cult of worshipping the emperor. And in the midst of all this, the Jews had a synagogue and a struggling Christian community existed. Now, the Jews had been granted exemption from emperor worship by Rome, but there were no such favours for the Christians who found themselves persecuted by the pagans and also persecuted by the Jews. The Christians were accused of being enemies of Rome because they refused to say Caesar is Lord each year. The Christians were also blamed for any natural disaster or mishap that would befall the city because people reasoned that in not worshipping all of these gods, they were inciting them to bring their wrath upon the city. The Christians were hated because their beliefs and practices divided families. The pagans deemed the Christians agape feasts to be orgies. And together with the Jews, they viewed the Christian observance of communion as akin to cannibalism. This was a church that was facing some seriously troubling times. Spiritually, they were doing well. Jesus finds no need to rebuke or criticise them. But physically, their lives were bitter. This was a church for whom death was a very real possibility. And so Jesus' first words to them are very reassuring. I was dead, but I came back to life again. He assures them that death is not the last word and he knows this because he himself overcame death to rise to life and living in a beautiful city that was once effectively dead having been all but destroyed by the Lydians around 600 BC and then raised to life through this rebuilding I don't think this comment would have been wasted on the Christians in Smyrna the next thing Jesus says to them is I know. And this little phrase is found in each of the letters. I know, I know your deeds, I know your afflictions, I know your circumstances, I know your reputation, I know, I know, I know. We'll see it time and time again as we progress through these letters. The one who walks among the seven lampstands, among his churches, he knows each one. And I have to wonder what does he know about us? In the case of Smyrna, he knew their afflictions and their poverty. And yet he tells them that in spite of their poverty, they are rich beyond imagining. In the darkness of Smyrna, this church was a shining light. This church was not content to give a little bit here and give a little bit there and to watch as bit by bit their faith was eroded and absorbed into the culture around them. He knows because he too had suffered the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. He too had been persecuted by temple and synagogue. 
He'd been arrested, he'd been flogged, he'd been falsely accused, he'd been rejected by his own, and ultimately, he'd been put to death. He knew what they were suffering. And the word that is translated here as afflictions literally means pressure. It was used to refer to the crushing weight of a big grinding stone grinding down grain. Their allegiance to Jesus was causing this intense crushing pressure to be brought down upon them. Life was not just a little bit difficult for them. It was intensely difficult. And in much the same way that crushing myrrh produces its rich fragrance, this crushing of the church in Smyrna caused by that intense crushing weight of the persecution that they were facing was producing in them a spiritual richness. There are two Greek words that can be used to describe poverty. One of those words means that you're just sort of scraping by, you know, you're living hand to mouth. Uh, you're not starving, but you certainly don't have much in excess. In English, we might describe this as being poor. That's not the word that's used here to describe poverty in Smyrna. The word that we might use in English to describe what is being talked about here is destitute. It's more than just going without occasionally. It's closer to starvation and homelessness. The Christians in Smyrna were often unable to work or trade because of their refusal to worship Caesar. And so they didn't have the required certificate. Can you imagine what it must have been like to live in this beautiful, wealthy city with its beautiful wide streets, to walk down that golden street, looking about you at all of the beautiful temples and buildings, and yet to know that your own children at home are going hungry because of your faith in Jesus? Can you imagine the temptation to simply give in and make your annual declaration of loyalty to Caesar? And yet these dear ones did not. And all over the world, even today, there are Christians enduring empty stomachs, being dragged from their homes, being beaten, imprisoned, tortured and killed because they too refuse to renounce Jesus. To them... Jesus says, I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. What would he say to us? What would a little crushing pressure do to us? Would it produce from us a rich fragrance of devotion or the rotten stink of apostasy? Jesus knew their afflictions, he knew their poverty, and he knew the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. Now, we don't know exactly who this group was. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Rome these words, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. 
Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And we can't know completely to whom this comment of Jesus was directed. Such men could have perhaps been the Judaizers who sought to impose circumcision as a requirement on Christian salvation in the early church. But perhaps the term is applied more broadly to those who only trace their lineage back to Abraham, but who lacked faith. We don't know. What we do know is this. Jews who were not Jews were in league with Satan and participating in the persecution of Smyrna's Christians. And this bitterness between Jew and Christian at the time in Smyrna is most, most famously left its mark on early church history in the martyrdom of Polycarp, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Now this happened around 155 AD, so that's approximately 60 or so years later than this book of Revelation. But no doubt that sort of animosity took time to build up. The Jews and the pagans at the time are said to have formed a large mob crying out about Polycarp. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. And the Jews are said to have eagerly gone to gather the firewood to burn Polycarp. The magistrate, not wanting to see the old man die, said to him, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? But Polycarp refused and was taken to the stadium to be executed. There, several more attempts were made to change his mind. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. In that case, the atheists being those who did not worship the gods of Rome. Do you know what the 86-year-old bishop did? He fixed his gaze on that crowd that had gathered in the stadium to witness the execution of the Christians and he waved his arms at them and he said, away with the atheists. The magistrate again tried to get old Polycarp to renounce his faith. Swear and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach, reproach Christ. This time the old man replied with these now well-known words. Eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? The guards readied themselves to nail Polycarp to the post in the middle of the big pile of wood that had been gathered. But Polycarp assured them that God, who would strengthen him to endure the fire, would also enable him to remain there without the need for any nails. So Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, stood there while the flames burned around him. And the only sounds heard from him were said to be the sounds of prayer and rejoicing in Jesus. He prayed this prayer. O Lord, almighty God, the father of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. These were deep-seated feelings that had built up over a long period of time. And Polycarp would not be the only martyr in Smyrna. He might have been the best known of them, but there were many 
many others. The next words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't be afraid for I'll make everything better. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because I'm going to destroy everyone who comes against you. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, I'll take away all of your suffering. He effectively says, don't be afraid, it's going to get worse. It's not really the type of thing most of us would want to hear from Jesus. More often than not, our prayers are filled with requests for our suffering, for our comparatively minor trials to be taken away, rather than prayer for spiritual power to prevail through them. Not only did Jesus know of their afflictions and their poverty and the slander against them, but he also knew that what they were going through was going to get much worse, but that their suffering would be limited to 10 days. Now, again, what 10 days refers to, we can't be sure. Based on John's repeated use of the Old Testament, many say that it's drawn from the book of Daniel and refers to an indefinite time of testing, which in Daniel's case was 10 days, for which he and his comrades were allowed to eat vegetables and drink water rather than the king's rich food to avoid compromising the dietary laws given to them through Moses. Others say it might be an actual historical reference to a time of imprisonment or a period of very intense suffering. It may have been representative of a historical change. For example, the time between um, the assassination of the Emperor Domitian and the dec decree of the next emperor, which brought an end to his persecution. 10 days may also be symbolic since symbolism is widely used in apocalyptic literature. Three and seven are both known as numbers which represent completion and perfection in the Bible. And so the sum of these two numbers being 10 might possibly uh, represent the completeness of their time of suffering. 10 could also have a broader prophetic meaning. Some have suggested the 10 persecutions of the early church under the various Roman emperors. Whatever 10 refers to, it implies that their suffering and their time of testing will be finite. It will have an end. Be faithful, says Jesus, even to the point of death. He was. And now they were being called to follow his example. You might remember in the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is recorded in the, the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15, 23, when Jesus arrives at Golgotha, he's offered wine mixed with, of all things, myrrh. And from the Talmud, we learn that this mixture was used to deaden pain. Mark's Gospel records that Jesus rejected it. His sacrifice on the cross was made without such compromise. When Jesus says, I know, to the church in Smyrna, he knows. He knows because he's been there. 
When Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, we know that he has already set the supreme example of just what that means. He refused to compromise. So did old Polycarp and so have many thousands after them. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Now read literally, that statement would be, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of the life because there's an article in there. Death in that statement is just death. Everyone experiences it, but life is the life. It's eternal life, and it's reserved only for those who are faithful unto death. The residents of Smyrna were proud that their city had been brought back to life and that it had been rebuilt in all of its splendour. They were proud that it was known as the crown of Asia. To them, the one who introduced himself as him who died and came back to life again, he promises something far better than a rebuilt city and a crown far more valuable than simply the crown of Asia. To them is promised eternal life. And the word used here for crown is not the type of crown that a king or queen would wear. It describes the wreath that would be placed on the head of a victor in the games that were held in that great city. And the same word is used to describe the festive garland that would be worn at a banquet by all the guests. Those who are victorious, who remain faithful unto death, will partake in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And they will receive the crown of life, which is eternal life. They will not be hurt at all by the second death, that lake of fire described later in Revelation chapter 20. Well, what an example this church whose name means myrrh is to us. We who live in luxury and yet are so easily prone to grumble circumstances of their lives were bitter. They were being crushed by the weight of persecution. They were slandered for their faith. They lived in poverty, but in the eyes of Jesus, whose eyes are the only one that matters, they were rich. This was a church for which Jesus has no words of rebuke because they were living as a people who were set apart for God. They had dedicated themselves to his service at great personal cost. Do you know that when the tabernacle and all of its various articles and utensils, the ark and even the priests who would serve in the tabernacle, when they were set apart for God's holy service, God instructed Moses to anoint them with a sacred oil. Can you guess? what the primary ingredient was in that oil? It was myrrh, Exodus 30, 22. And when Esther and all of the other girls went through their 12 months of preparation to meet King Xerxes, can you guess what oil was used to purify them for the first six months of their time of preparation? 
It was the oil of myrrh. Esther 2, verse 12. In their name, in just one word, you can trace the story of this church. They were the church of myrrh. The bitterness of myrrh speaks of their life circumstances, bitter and hard. Myrrh reminds us that they were a people set apart from the darkness in which they lived for God, just like those items and priests in the tabernacle were by the anointing of that oil containing myrrh. Myrrh reminds us that they lived and died without compromise, just as Jesus did in refusing the wine mixed with myrrh to ease his pain at the cross. And from its use as a spice for preparing the dead for burial, myrrh reminds us that for many of them, their faithfulness would indeed result in their death. From its use in the book of Esther as an agent of purification and preparation, myrrh reminds us that their time on earth, just as ours, is only a preparation to meet the King of Kings and receive the crown of life. Faithfulness unto death. Isn't that what every married couple intends on their wedding day? And isn't that what Jesus intends for his relationship with each one of us, collectively his church? He is faithful to his covenant promises and we must be too. No compromise, no quitting when the going gets tough, when the bridegroom comes to claim his bride and take her to the father's house, we all want to be taken to that marriage supper of the lamb. Be faithful, says Jesus, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. What a beautiful letter and what a brave and faithful church. If you are struggling in bitter circumstances, perhaps you might be the only believer in your family. Perhaps the circumstances of life for you are tough. Perhaps you've been slandered for your faith. Perhaps you're being tempted to unfaithfulness. If the bitterness of your circumstances feel like a crushing weight upon you, then let the words of Jesus encourage you today. I was dead and came back to life again. I know. Do not be afraid. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. And if that is not your experience right now, then let this little letter remind you that all over the world, there are countless churches just like this one we've just read about, suffering even to the point of death for their faith in Jesus. One day, we will share with them at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And until that day, as their brothers and sisters in Christ, we must pray for them. Will you join me in prayer now? Thank you, Father God, that you are always faithful. You always keep your promises. Forgive us, Father, for our weaknesses. Forgive us when we have compromised. Forgive us when we have looked beyond you to find our fulfilment elsewhere in people, 
and in things. Forgive us when the praises of people have meant more to us than the honour of our God. We thank you for your word to this brave and faithful church in Smyrna. Help us to remember your words to them when the circumstances of our own life become bitter. Thank you that your word endures and is the same today. Father, we pray for those who are struggling under the crushing weight of persecution. Empower them by your spirit to overcome, we pray. Have mercy on them. Amen. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could think or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't forget to grab a cup of coffee or something to eat and log into Zoom for a chance to catch up with one another over our virtual morning tea. Would you join me now in our closing song, a song which I think you'll find is fitting for this church in Smyrna, so poor by the world's standards, but spiritually so wealthy. It was definitely well with their soul. How is it with yours? When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, what See?